0: Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Sunday Special Edition. My name is Melanie and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Sunday, November 17th, 2013. And the share ID for Friday, November 15th is 5469. Oa Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who On outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive overeating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At A Vision For You Big Book Study and our Sunday Special Edition, Our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Nahama to please read the 12 steps.
1: Nahama, would you please press star 1? Yeah. Good morning. Can you hear me now?
0: I can. Good morning, Nehama. Thank you.
2: Okay. That's Nehama. Grateful to be here this morning. The twelve steps: one, we admitted we were powerless over food that our life became unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, five admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six we are entirely ready to have God remove all those all these defects of character. Seven humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. eight made a list of all persons we have harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine made direct amends. Such people, wherever possible, except when to do so, would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, so through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all ourselves. Thank you, best. Okay.
0: Thank you, Nahama. And now I'll ask Carol G. from England to please read the 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous.
3: Thank you, Melanie. It's Carol, compulsive overeater. Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. 6. An OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. 7. Every OA group ought to be fully self supporting, declining outside contributions. 8. Overeat Anonymous should remain forever non professional, but our service centres may employ special workers. 9. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality and past.
0: Thank you, Carol. The whole point of moving through the steps is to have the big book's biggest promise fulfilled in your life, a spiritual awakening. Step 12 states, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, We tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Those of us who've had this transformation are charged with a responsibility, a responsibility to carry this message. Joining us this morning to share her experience, strength and hope is Rhea, a recovered compulsive overeater who resides in New York. Welcome to a vision for you this morning, Rhea.
4: Would you like thank to? P- you. Oh, good
0: morning. There you are. Good morning to you.
4: Hi. Um, I'm sorry. You were asking me something.
0: Uh, I was introducing you to be able to be our speaker this morning, and uh, okay. And the, yeah, I'm passing the baton to you. Good morning and welcome.
4: Thank you, thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's unbelievable just listening to the the um, the traditions and the steps being read. We have people from England, we have people from Israel, we have people from all over the place listening to this meeting. It's very humbling and it's, a big responsibility but as you know as was just read if we have a spiritual awakening we ha- we're charged with the job of, of spreading it so I'm grateful for the privilege today um, so my name is Ria I'm a compulsive overeater and a bulimic I've had experience with the 12 steps um, working the steps out of the big book with the help of a big book step study sponsor and a loving God and I will share my story, but I'm going to use the big book as my guideline um, and sort of reference my story in relation to to going through the big book. So if you have the big book with you, I I suggest looking at it because it's it's my story. (laughs) So I'm looking at the doctor's opinion. And um, in this chapter, Dr. Silkworth, who was one of the pioneer doctors, Um, who advocated for alcoholics um, to the medical establishment that alcoholism was a disease as opposed to a moral failing or just sort of some kind of malfunction in the human makeup. Um, He wrote about the concept of the alcoholic addiction being an allergy. Um, And for me, from the time I was very young, I had that very same effect. It was... Anytime I ate, from the time I was six months old, we have a video of me when I was six months old and I was sitting in a high chair between my parents and they had a big tub of something that turned out to be my my favorite binge food. And they're both having some. And on the video, they spoon a little bit into my mouth. And if you watch the video, you can see my eyes. Six months old, my eyes just light up like, like I'd hit the jackpot. And for the rest of the video, and it lasted about maybe like five to ten more minutes, I was grunting at my parents to give me more. And they thought, you know, it was cute. A six month old, is asking for more, but they kept giving me more because I kept asking for more. And by the end, I had eaten a lot of ice cream and I was, sorry, eaten a lot of this food and I was, I was a baby. But I watched the reaction happen. I had a reaction that the phenomenon of craving kicked in and that it started from that point. And I don't know if that was the first time, but. From the time I was young, that was my reaction to certain and, um And for me, I, it's it's what followed me through my, my entire period of addiction, um, active addiction, until I got into recovery. But, you know, I was five years old, and I would dig other people's, you know, discarded food out of the garbage can at school. I would steal other people's snacks um, because all day long, I would be driven by this compulsion to eat Um, because once I put those things in my system, that was the reaction that my body had and that my mind had. All other thoughts, all other reality was really irrelevant. It was not, nothing took priority over me getting the food that I needed. the other thing that's really that sticks out for me in the doctor's opinion was is when he talks about um on page x x i x um when he talks about um i'm sorry an x x v i i i men and women drink essentially because they like the effects produced by alcohol you know people eat food tastes good, why not? The sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. So for someone like me, eating the way that I eat, as a compulsive overeater, when I'm active in my addiction, it it's something that it's the re, the uh, the result that I get from eating compulsively is something that is no longer something that feels good. It becomes a necessity. I feel I can't survive without that. And it's, my brain literally tells me that. I remember one night I was in, um, in, I lived in Europe for a while, and I was in the middle of Paris, and a bunch of friends of mine said, we're going out, why don't you come with us? And I remember being gripped with this fear, this very real fear that if I did not go back to my hotel room and order room service, I was going to die. And it, it logically makes absolutely no sense, but it was complete fact in my head, and that's what it was. That's it. If I did not go back, I was going to die. It's the only normal life. They are restless, irritable, and discontented until they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. So for me, this is the crux of my disease. This is it. Because when I wasn't eating, I was scared all the time. I was afraid of everything and everyone. I have a very dear friend in the program who talks about how Um, he's addicted to people, places, and things. And for me, I'm afraid of people, places, and things. Um, From a young age, I did not do well socially. I was teased by other children. But besides being teased, even if when people liked me, I always felt less than. I always felt like everybody was born with the instruction manual, and I didn't get it. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew how life life works. But I had no clue. It was like I was constantly playing catch-up with everybody else. The interesting thing is that lack of self-esteem, you know, it's funny. It's, it talks about in the big book how we, we have to kill the ego. It's the disease of self. And I always thought, I have such low self-esteem. I don't have an ego problem. But if I'm constantly thinking about myself, whether for the positive or the negative, then I absolutely have an ego problem because I placed myself in the center of the universe. And that for me was how it was from the very beginning. I imagined myself in the middle of some grand movie and it was starring me and everybody else was the supporting characters. And I knew how I wanted my story to go. And if you were supporting that story, by all means, stick around. If you don't, I was going to burn through you like cigarettes. So let's keep reading. After they succumb to the desire again, as so many do, the phenomenon of craving develops and they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. So this, as I explained, this happened to me constantly. I would tell myself, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to eat it. But it was, it was almost like the food had a power over me that I could not resist. It's, and that's, for me, what powerlessness over food is. It's that when I take that bite, I no longer have a choice. There is no, I give up my power of choice. Once that bite's gone, done, that's it. It's over. I, I, don't, I don't choose anymore. And I will go through that spree. And then at the end, I'll promise myself, oh, oh, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And there have been times where 10 minutes later, I'm doing it again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope of his recovery. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, what's Change, excuse me once the changes has occurred the very same person who seemed doomed who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules so that's an incredible thing when I've lost my power of choice but there's a there's something that I can do to change that and not just that not just to change that I lose my power, that I don't lose my power of choice, but that I don't even end up, go to that situation in the first place. That, because the dynamic of my disease then, based on the doctor's opinion, is not the allergy to food. That's one aspect of it. But it's the restlessness, irritability, and discontentment that pushes me to that food in the first place. And then once I take that bite, then I lose my power of choice. I need to take care of the me problem not the food problem, and that's what the 12 steps are for. So now if we take a look at Bill's story, um, the amazing thing to me about Bill's story, when I first read this story, I you know, I thought it was just, an. Uh, an for me, when I first got into this program, it took me two years to get abstinent and another about a year and a half to two years to start working the steps because for the first time in my life, I was thin, and I didn't need the steps. But, and so for me, Bill's story was a cute story, and I little oh, Cinderella, happy, happily ever after story. But as I got into the steps, I saw myself in Bill, which was that, yes, he was absolutely a confirmed alcoholic, but more than that, he was a confirmed egomaniac. From the beginning of his story, he talks about, at the bottom of page one, I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises, which I would manage with the utmost assurance. On the next page, I'd prove to the world I was important. For me, this is the essence of my disease. I don't think that I'm worth much, so I have to prove that I'm worth something by making everyone else around me tell me that I'm worth something. And that meant that I spent my entire life juggling and doing acrobatics and doing everything I could, changing my personality with each person I was with just so that they would like me because I was not enough on my own. And because I was not enough on my own, I had to eat over it. I had to numb that pain and that discomfort of being in my own skin by eating compulsively. And I felt that. I felt it. I I remember there, there were times where I would be out in the world and the entire day I would be so anxious. And fearful, just being out, I was afraid of, I don't know what was going to happen to me. I was afraid of the lack of control. I was afraid that somebody would hurt me, that I would die, that somebody close to me would die. It was just a very constantly this ticker tape of worst possible scenarios going on in my head all day long. And all I wanted to do was go home and comfort myself with food. And so I did from the time I was very young, very young, kindergarten even, I would eat, I would uh, have breakfast at home, have my snack, have my lunch at snack time. I would beg leftovers off of my classmates at at lunchtime, and sometimes even steal other kids' snacks. I'd get home from school and I would eat like raid my cabinets with snack food until dinner time. Sit down and eat a full dinner with my family, and then in the evening after everyone went to bed, I would sneak up and down the stairs to the kitchen and bring food back up to my room to binge on. And I would stick the wrappers behind my bed. And the day that I moved, we moved from my house, so I was probably, let me think, I was probably 20 or 21 at that point. And they pulled my bed away from the wall. And behind the wall, behind the bed, along the wall, was a wall of wrappers that was five feet wide by two feet high. That was like years of accumulated compulsive eating. And my mother looked at me and she was, where did this come from? And I just, you know, I just kind of looked at her. I don't know. That's weird. How did I get there? But that's that's that wall was how I dealt with my fear, because fear, deep down, is the essence of my disease. So the other the other. So Bill also talks about on page three. For the next few years, this is the middle paragraph. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. So for Bill. Worldly accomplishment is what gives him validation. It's what gives him a sense of security, a sense of worth, um, a sense of being real. Because for me, I always there was this. I would feel like, always like I was like in on separated from the west, rest of the world by a glass wall. Like I was watching everybody else have a life, and I was sort of standing on the sidelines, waiting for my own life to start happening. And I thought, well, when this happens, it'll start. When this happens, it'll start. You know, when I, when I have this party, it'll start. Or when I graduate high school, it'll finally start. But, and I watch people having, you know, normal lives, growing up, going out, having boyfriends, having friends, you know, experiencing things, going on dates, all you know, going to prom. And I, it, it just always felt like I was a, a bystander. Um, and so I constantly tried to accomplish um, or at least get attention to prove that I was there, to prove that I was present, to prove that I was worth somebody's attention. And that that sometimes manifested with really destructive behaviors. Um, and it certainly manifested by putting other people down. I was cruel to other people because I wanted to, to push myself up. Um, and as that continued, as I grew up, I found that it, it fueled, because every time I would act that way, I knew I wasn't being myself, even though I had no idea who myself was. But every time I, was, I would do that, I would feel more separated from myself and more alone in myself, which would fuel the desire to eat. Um, the other piece of that, um, by using other people for validation, is that I also used other people as excuses for the reasons that my life weren't, wasn't going the way that I wanted it to. I had to blame other people for the problems in my life. Particularly for me, it was my mother who was the real, who was the real scapegoat in my life. Um, because I didn't know how to take responsibility for anything. I didn't believe myself capable of being responsible. And I was afraid of not knowing how to do something, of not knowing. It was this fear that I'm going to be found out that I don't know. Because apparently they were going to form some kind of tribunal and stone me in the town square if I didn't know something, God forbid. So every time I didn't know something, any time I felt any kind of discomfort, it was her fault. And I would take fights with her, and she would retaliate. And I would, after a long time, I would push her and push her and push her, and she would retaliate. She was kind of saintly that way. But then when she did retaliate, I could sort of say, oh, she look, my, you know, my mom abuses me, my mom's mean to me, and it, it would fuel my my need to eat. I had to come up with reasons to eat, so that's what I did. It was a very intricate dance that I didn't even realize I was doing until years after it stopped. So on page five, Bill talks about how liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. And for me, that was absolutely true. And later down in that paragraph, nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation. For me, that's, that's what my life really was. Anytime I wanted to eat anything, I would promise myself that this was the only time. Because this time I can do it. You know, I would, my I, my parents gave me lots of incentives to lose weight. I grew up, you know, thank God I had a very privileged upbringing. So I was promised things like trips to Paris and new wardrobes and, and great things I would have loved to have if only I would lose weight and I was incapable of doing it. Incapable. But each time I would start again thinking this is it. This is the time. But it got to a point where I started to realize that I couldn't control my eating but maybe I could control my weight. And so when I was 16 years old, well, before I get to that, I I started to realize that um, I thought I could control it. And I remember going, I was 14 years old, and I was well over 200 pounds at that point. And I went to a diet and fitness center with my mother for a month. And we stayed there learning how to eat and exercise and, like, the ironic thing is that most compulsible readers and people who are obsessed with food are actually better qualified to be dietitians than most dietitians,
5: <laughs> um
4: meaning like I've done so many diets and I know all the calorie books and all of this like i I know all of it, I just can't implement it and I remember sitting in a in a a lecture there, and the doctor was talking about the or whoever was teaching it it was this concept of caloric intake versus metabolic output, basically. If you work out and burn calories and you burn more calories than you eat, you're going to lose weight, which is pretty obvious and I was, you know, not even done with high school at that point. So yeah, I get it. If I exercise and don't eat as much, I will lose weight. But what and I raised my hand and I said, "What happens if there's something in my kitchen that can't I can't not eat it. It's talking to me. I can't not eat it." And the person giving the lecture said, "Just don't eat it." Like as if it was so simple, and that I think was one of the first moments when I realized that maybe I really can 't control this thing, but I'm in trouble because i don 't have anything that's going to help me control it. I was looking for a magic pill, I was going on a diet, but I started to realize that i'm out of control of the situation, but I've, i' it's, it's my job to figure out how to do it, and i I, I, I started looking for everything pills and and shakes, and diets, and finally, when I was 16 years old, I went to, at my school, a woman came to speak who had recovered from bulimia came and she talked about how she used to binge and purge and you know, she basically like she wanted to eat whatever she wanted, and not gain any weight and so she she purged. But thank God her life is better now and she doesn't do it anymore and like this woman was brought in because there's uh, and to that even to this day it's like this, but when I was a teenager, you know, how old am I? So about fifteen years ago. Um they there was an epidemic of, of eating disorders and not just compulsive or eating. There were some very sick um, anorexic women, bulimic women, in my school, young women. There's, you know, it manifests in different ways. But eating disorders were prevalent then, and they're prevalent now. And it's, it's, you know, it's a horrific thing for anyone who has to go through it. But they brought this woman in to to dissuade us from taking that that road. But for me, I heard which all I heard was eat whatever you want and not gain weight. And I thought that that was the most brilliant thing I had ever heard. So fine, I'm not going to be thin. I had already given up on being thin. I was, you know, 16 years old. I had already gone through life as a fat person. It was painful, and I hated it, and I felt like a freak. But I knew what it was. So fine. But if I could prevent myself from getting any fatter than I was, I would do it. And so I started binging and purging. And I thought that that was something I could control, too. I could stop whenever I want to. But this works for me, so why would I stop? And... I eventually, And because I'm, you know, a very quick bottom, I was binging and purging a dozen times a day within a matter of months. And I remember my my parents, my mother specifically, sitting me down and having an intervention about it, telling me I had to stop. And my I shared a bathroom with my sister, and I guess my sister figured out what was going on, and she told my parents. And I remember, you know, feeling so angry that they were taking this away from me, because this was my thing. This was my magic pill. I didn't want to have to do it, but this was what was working for me. I wasn't losing weight, but I wasn't gaining weight either. And that, to me, was the most important thing. This was my this was my thing. And I promised I would stop, and I sort of did, and I sort of didn't. And then I went to college, and it really took off, because then I had free reign to eat what I wanted and throw up what I wanted to, and do whatever I wanted to. And um, eventually I saw that it it was really dangerous. There was one night I was purging, and I I almost choked to death. The food got caught in my throat, and I, like, to the point where I couldn't make a sound. And I I was convinced I was going to die right there. And I prayed, which we'll get to that. I prayed and asked for help and said, I promise I'll never do this again. God, please help me. I don't want to die like this. Somehow the food dislodged, and I was fine. I could have killed myself, and it scared me for a good five minutes until I, you know, I said, I'm, I should stop this. I, I shouldn't do it anymore. I need to, I need to stop. I'm I'm done. And, you know, then at the bottom of page five, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight where it had been my high resolve. I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to my mind. It really was at that point beyond my control. So by the time I got to college, I was I was well 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 into the the last stages of compulsive overeating. And at that point, I really 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 had I was well into the grip not only of compulsive eating but bulimia. Um and for me, a, a lot of bulimics um I've I've shared this before and anyone on the on the line who's bulimic, I think can probably relate with this. As much as I didn't like having to do it, there was a part of me that liked very much doing it, not because it was such a pleasant thing, but because there's this feeling, two feelings. One is I'm feeling something by doing it. It's it's a very intense experience, and so by I was so numbed out with food, I had no feeling at all about anything. I didn't have opinions about anything. I didn't know myself about anything because I didn't feel anything ever. So having such an intense physical experience was actually feeling something. And for me, it was, I I appreciated that because I didn't feel much of anything else. And the other thing was that it, it was sort of a physical punishment. And I felt like I deserved it. And for me, as much as, you know, I knew intellectually that it was a dangerous thing, I deserved to hurt myself like that. And if I did die like that, then I probably deserved that too. So... I if we turn to page twelve thirteen in um in Bill's story, it talks about how he meets um his, his friend Ebby, who at that point had gotten sober with the Oxford group. And um for me I went I didn't find out I don't remember how I found out about OA, but I went to a a um a meeting in Boston when I was nineteen years old. And I just went to this meeting because I knew I had no place else to go. All the other diets had failed. There was no place else. And I went. And I sat in the meeting. And there were people there who had what I wanted. They seemed to be content, peaceful, normal, part of life, feeling things. And I felt like they would also understand if I told them that I can't not eat stuff. They got that. Um, and in the beginning, I wasn't fully ready to do what they asked me to do, Just ask me what they suggested that I do, not just with with the steps, but also even to get abstinent, because I stuck with step one. I'm powerless, right? If I'm powerless, there's nothing I can do, so I might as well just do what I want to. Um, but I realized later on that being powerless is just the beginning step. It's just acknowledging that and then, taking the steps I need to take to arrest my disease. So about 2 years, I went to meetings and I went to um I went to meetings and I sort of took on a small turn and I sort of did, you know, I was basically kind of just going to meetings and I would eat, you know, healthy, whatever that means. Um just a lot of healthy food. And then I went away. I went down to Florida. I was working down down there. And, um, I stopped going to meetings, and I went into the most harrowing relapse. It wasn't even a relapse because I'd never really been abstinent, but basically, I saw where my disease will take me. I did insane things with food, insane things with food you know i as i said i I lived in a I lived in a complex across the street from a convenience store, and i called in sick to work that day because I'm a bottom feeding addict. I'm not the type of, I'm not a high functioning addict. When I'm fully active in my disease, I can't go to work. I can't maintain relationships. I can't bathe myself. I'm not, I'm really not functional. And I called in sick to work that day. I went across the street to the convenience store. I bought my binge food. I brought them home. I ate them and it was a huge amount of food I purged. And I was so sick. I remember laying, laying on the couch and thinking, I'm so sick right now. There's i I I'm never doing this again, ever. This is disgusting. And ten minutes later, ten minutes later, I got up, I walked across the street to the cleaning store and I bought more food. And that's when I really saw how sick i not, how sick I am. That's when I saw. I knew as horrible and horrific as the whole time was, I it was what I needed, and it's what I look to every time I need to remember that I'm a compulsive overeater. So I went through that relapse, and I ended up coming home and moved back in with my parents while I went to do my master's degree. And while I was there, I started going to a meeting in um, in western New Jersey, and there were women there who had what I wanted. They were thin. They had been maintaining their weight loss for you know, of 200 plus pounds, like not, no, no easy feat for, for a number of years. And they were married, they had families, they had lives. And I just thought, you know, maybe if I do what they do, I'll have what they have. It was like the wires just crossed in my brain. And I really believe that it was God reaching in and sort of flipping the light on for me. And that's why when people come into the program and and they tell me, you know, I, I really struggle. I'm I'm having a hard time. I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. I just tell them to keep coming back because I didn't get it in the beginning either. I think fundamentally I knew that in order for me to really recover, I was going to have to give up a lot of things and I was going to have to change a lot of things and I was going to have to take responsibility for things, which scared me to death. I was going to have to take responsibility for my own recovery. Nobody could do it for me. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted somebody else to do the hard work for me. Why should I have to work hard? Life is supposed to be easy. When something's hard, it's wrong. There's something wrong with things being hard. And so I just sort of coasted. But I, I guess that night I got to the point where I was willing to go to any length. And so, you know, I had my drunk to end all drunks. And it took a while, but eventually I got to the point where I was willing. So as of that night, that was March 29th, 2004, I got abstinent. And I started eating a food plan that my sponsor at that time gave me. Um, I started, for me, this is what works. I weigh and measure my food, and I don't eat flour or sugar. And I write down my, well, I I don't write it down so much anymore, but I call it as my sponsor every day. And, but, you know, that works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. And I got obstinate. And for the first time, I started feeling things, which was really intense because I hadn't felt anything since I started eating compulsively about 20 years before. And I realized that I really had a lot of growing up to do, but I felt like I was I was getting thinner, and I was thin. So that meant I had been telling myself for years that if I was thin, my life would be perfect. So if I'm perfect now, that, it, how I behave doesn't really matter. I'm thin and pretty. Who cares how I behave? And then, so I got in, And in the process, I managed to, you know, almost destroy my relationship with my mother. I alienated myself from people, and I had no real relationship with anyone except myself. So around a year and a half after I got abstinent, maybe two years after I got abstinent, I was, um, I was at my goal weight, and I was living on my own. And I found myself... I had been involved with somebody romantically, and he was not interested in anything really long term, and he was very clear with me about that, but I decided to abuse myself by going after someone who was completely unavailable, and went after, and went after, and went after to the point where it finally, I had to bottom out on it, and I realized that if I didn't do something about myself, I was going to end up alone, and not just, you know, oh, poor me, I don't have a boyfriend, but alone, alone. Like, even if I had relationships, they would just all be about me. I knew it, and I didn't want to see it, but I also knew that I couldn't continue on the way that I want to, that I was. And that, for me, is, is the essence of my addiction. I will do what I can get away with for as long as I can until I can't get away with it anymore. And then I'll then I'll do something about it. Um, And that's, you know, that's how it was in every step of the way. But anyway, so at that point, I had gotten... I got hooked up with um, the people in Massachusetts who run the Big Book Step Study, and um, it's and they they work the steps directly as it's laid out in the Big Book. The directions are all in the Big Book. Um, before that, I had worked the steps sort of, you know, on the side using like little workbooks and answering some questions and stuff. And I guess you know they served me at the time. You know, I I felt like I was doing something, and and maybe I got a little bit of insight from it. But really, I felt like it, it wasn't, I wasn't being honest. I wasn't being fully honest. I can answer some questions, and I love talking about myself because I'm completely self-obsessed. So I'm not really sure it, how much it did aside from just sort of like help me tread water a little bit. In, the, in retrospect, it was really training for the Olympics because at that point after I, I bottomed out on like my relationships and realizing that I was really, I treated people the way I treated the food. I just burned through them. And I was propelled by fear all the time, professionally propelled by fear. I was making choices about my life that were fear-based. I'm going to take this, I'm going to follow this career path because I'm afraid of doing what I really want to do because it's not as stable income-wise or it's not as, it's, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to get my paycheck, you know, freelancing versus taking a teaching job that I hate. And, you know, or I'm going to, I'm I'm staying home tonight because I'm afraid to go to this part of the city because I've never been there before. What if I get lost and so, if something happens to me? It's it was always a fear-based decision, and I realized that. And and I realized when I when I bottomed down on my relationships that they were fear-based too. I went after people who were emotionally unavailable to me because that way I wouldn't have to risk really being intimate with anyone. If you don't want me, then I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> and so. I went to my uh, big, my friend who was also involved in Big Book and I begged her to help me and I said I will do whatever you tell me please I'm begging you. And at that point I I believe that I really took step 1. Because yes, I had known for a long time that I was powerless over food, but that was really only the first half of step 1. Then there's the dash. And it says that our lives had become unmanageable. It doesn't say we were power, our lives are unmanageable because we were powerless over food. It's a dash. Those two ideas are connected. But even more than that, our lives are unmanageable, or my life was unmanageable, and I dealt with it by eating compulsively. And when I took that first bite, my powerlessness over food kicked in. I'm still powerless over food. If I take that bite, the same reaction will happen. But because I've had a spiritual experience, my life is manageable, so I don't need to go there. So I took my I took the second half of step one that night. I've been ironically I've been abstinent for you know two three years. I had a normal sized body, but I wasn't willing to go to any lengths yet. I was willing to rest on my laurels because it's easy to be on a diet. I knew what the rules were, and in some ways I kind of you know was addicted to that too. I was addicted to to my abstinence and addicted to the accolades and the the shopping for new clothes and the the purely cosmetic part of recovery and it's a wonderful thing I'm not discounting it it's a wonderful thing to be in a normal sized body and to be thin after years of a lifetime of being fat it's a wonderful thing but that's not recovery that's just getting thin because thin is not well it's just thin and I had to learn that and so I started writing a I started reading the big book and really reading the big book and reading what they had to say. And so for Bill, on page 12, when he starts talking about, when Ebby starts telling him about, I'm sorry, in, in, on page 11, when in the middle paragraph it says, God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. And that for me really was what the essence was here. My human will had failed. Not just with the food, but in every aspect of my life. I did not know how to live. I had no coping skills. I had no real skills because I had let my parents take care of me for my entire life. And I thought that I could run my life propelled on self-will and fear, and I had run it into the ground. I had to let something else take over for me. I had to let something else change me because otherwise I was going to destroy myself. So had this power originated in him, this is towards the bottom, the the third to last paragraph, obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me in that minute, and this was none at all. Powerlessness means if I don't have power over something, then something else has to have the power, not me. Nobody, I don't just, after working the steps, I don't magically get power over my life and over food. It doesn't happen. It's that I've given that power to something else, and I rely on that power to guide me. So on page twelve it talks about so that was my first step. I had finally hit my first step. So then the second step, step two, talks about came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So this was a loaded gun for me, this God thing. And they were and my big book friends were all very clear about how God was going to play a vital role in my recovery. So for many, I'm one of those people. I always believed in God. I never didn't believe in God, but the God of my childhood scared me to death. I always, you know, the God. When I thought of God, I thought of the God who like destroyed cities and turned people into salt and made floods and like it wasn't it wasn't a loving God. It was a punishing God and it was a a scary God. And as things happened in my life that were very traumatic, I lost a friend in a terrorist attack and. And, and, and I was miserable just from being fat. So this God was not a nice God. This God let bad things happen in the world. I remember when I was, I was maybe 10 years old when the Gulf War happened, and I remember everybody talking about um, Saddam Hussein coming and, and, you know, nuclear warfare in America and having to wear gas masks and all that stuff. And it terrified me. And when I thought about God, it was like a God that lets these kinds of things happen? What kind of a God is that? And so by the time I was a teenager, I believed in God, but I was perfectly content to let God stay in his corner and I'll stay in mine and we won't bother each other, and, and, and that'll be that. I didn't need to have a relationship with that God. let him run the world, and and I'll just kind of coast under the radar. Thank you very much. Um, So when I was told I was going to have to build a relationship with God, I really didn't want to. In fact, by the time I I was at that point, I was in my mid-20s at that point, I had sort of tried to convince myself that there was no God because I didn't want the God that I knew. And so I, but I was I was told to follow directions, and so I did. And so I started by by praying as if I believed in God, as if I believed, I should say, I believed in a God that was loving. And I went to, my family has a house on Cape Cod, and I went to the beach there. And I looked out at the water and the sky, and I said, I don't know if you're there, but I'm supposed to talk to you, so I'm talking to you. And that was the beginning. And on page 12, in Bill's story, in the third paragraph, my friend suggested that what what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? I grew up in a household um I'm Jewish and I grew up in a household that was not not pr- particularly observant we're sort of observant sort of not and so I was more I had more of a cultural religious upbringing and not really a spiritual upbringing. We didn't really talk about God in my house, and there wasn't really God in my synagogue and the God of my understanding, as I said, was a scary god and so I was told to fire the God of my understanding for that up until then and rewrite it. I could hire any kind of God I wanted to. And at first I thought that was very presumptuous. Like I can decide what God is. But then I sort of realized that number one, I didn't have a choice if I wanted to get better. But number two, why not? If God is all powerful, God can be anything. God is anything. So why not? And, um, and that's why in, in the steps it says a God of God as we understood him. Because God can be anything that we understand him or her to be, or it to be. That's that's the whole essence of God. And when I thought about that, I was willing. And so it said, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. And so I was willing. I expressed my willingness and that was my beginning. And so from there, even if I wasn't sure that this whole all these steps were going to work because I was convinced that I was the one exception to the rule. I was willing I would move forward as if I believed and if I was willing to do whatever it took. So on page 13, it talks about on the bottom paragraph, my friend promised when these things were done I would enter upon a new relationship with my creator. And this is what my friend told me. Your life is going to change when you do these steps in a way that you don't know yet. It's not going to necessarily get better, meaning like circumstances may not change, but you will change, and that's going to change your life. It said that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all of my problems, belief in the power of God, plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were the essential requirements. So basically, all I needed to do was be willing to believe and do as I was told. In the book because these people had done it these people had been where i had been and this was their experience and they gave very clear directions. so if i followed them i was going to have what they had it was very simple so i did And in the paragraph before it said i was to test my thinking by the new god consciousness within common sense would thus become uncommon sense in other words i was going to have to take every single idea that i had about myself and about my life and let it go which is a scary thing Even if it's not working for me, at least I know what it is. At least I know what the rules are, even if they are destroying me. But if I wanted to get better I was gonna have to turn my life upside down, shake it out and and rebuild. So I did. I started right I read through the big book and I started I took my third step with um with the sponsor and I started writing my fourth step. And I wrote every day for for, for an hour, for 10 months. And I realized as I started writing how much of my life was built on my self-centeredness and self-will. My resentments against people were sometimes completely imagined and simply because people didn't do what I wanted them to do or because they weren't giving me enough attention or because I, they were behaving the way that I didn't think was right was all about me i lived my life obsessed with myself and as it says on the top of page 14 simple but not easy a price had to be paid it meant destruction of self-centeredness and i was talking as i said i was talking to somebody about this the other day you know when somebody they were talking about how in in aa in general a lot of people talk about you know killing the ego and not being you know uh not being so what's the word? I guess just not patting yourself on the back so much, thinking you're so great, whatever. In OA, a lot of women, a lot of people in OA deal with low self-esteem. And so it's about being gentle with yourself and kind to yourself and building yourself up. But the truth is, whether you're thinking highly of yourself or lowly of yourself, you're still thinking of yourself. That's the whole idea. It doesn't matter which end you're coming from. If you're obsessed with yourself, you're obsessed with yourself. That self-centeredness needs to be destroyed. I need To look at myself with a clear and balanced picture and recognize my strengths, not so that I can feel good about myself, but so that I know what tools I have to use to help other people and to spread the message to other people. And when I I have to also look with a clear eye at my defects, not so I can feel bad about myself, but so that I can know what needs to be worked on in order to make myself a better vessel to reach out to other people to help other people and to be of service. It's like if I have a car and I know that, that like right now my car has, is making a weird rattling noise. A squirrel ran under my car last week and there was a banging sound. And since then there's been a weird rattling noise under my car. So I took it to the mechanic and the mechanic's going to fix the rattling noise because if my car isn't working, I can't get from point A to point B. It's the same thing with me. If I see, for example, that every time I talk to my mother-in-law, I get off the phone and I want to punch someone, then I need to look at myself because I can't have a relationship with my mother-in-law. if I can't be of service to her and I can't be of service to other people if I'm sitting there with a resentment. If I see that I'm in the middle of a conversation, that I'm interrupting people and talking about myself, then I'm not being of service to them. I need to look at that. I need to see that so that I can work on that, so that I can ask God to remove that defect and be willing to do it differently, to be able to to listen to, to people instead of waiting for my turn to talk the same thing. So, I started writing my fourth, and as I said, I saw these things, and in the middle of writing my fourth step, I met the man who had become my husband. And we had a very exciting and wonderful love story, and thank God we were married, and very happily so. Um, but part of me thought I had arrived, because, look, I'm doing so much better now. And this guy who is fabulous thinks I'm the most wonderful thing in the whole wide world and I think he's pretty A-OK too. And we're getting married. And that was really what I was after. I just wanted my happily ever after. Yes, I wanted to get better. But deep down it was like I just want to make myself normal so I can have a relationship and, and have a life and, and have my happily ever after. And so I finished my fourth step and I gave over my fifth. Um, but it was very, at that point, I felt like it was almost sort of tying up loose ends because now I had I had done my job I had done my job I had fixed myself and now I was going to get married and everything was going to be fine and when I went home to do my sixth and seventh step um and sixth and seven um if you look it's on page hold on one second page sixty no I'm sorry it's on page seventy six I think yeah page seventy six we look at step six. Um, so basically, after, in the way that I did the steps is right after I gave my fist to my sponsor, she sent me home and said, take an hour and meditate and do step six and seven. Ask yourself if you're willing and then ask God to remove all defects of character. And um, and I did that. But the whole time in the back of my head while I was meditating, I was just kind of waiting for the hour to end so I could go on a date with my to-be husband. And um, so, and at that point, after that, I, you know, I did my, my eight and nine. I, I wrote my list and I started making amends. But really, like, I wasn't as gung-ho about it as I had been in the beginning because there wasn't that sense of desperation anymore because in my head I had arrived. So, not long after I finished my, my fifth step, I got married, married my husband, and we, um, within a year, maybe a little more, but then within a year and a half or so, I was contemplating divorce. Not because of him, because of me. Not only that, but even though I had 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 come to a place of self-awareness because of my fourth step, I wasn't maintaining what I had seen. And I was still indulging in a lot of the behaviors that I didn't know yet were alcoholic. Like, geographical cures, which I knew in, in, in instinctively were some, was something that I did. I lived in three different cities in one year before I met my husband. But even with my husband, it was, I want to move to a different place. I don't like it here. I don't like it here. Let's, if we move someplace else, it might be better. And also this sort of magical thinking, like, if we live, if I want something, then I should have it, even if it's beyond our means, because if I, if I want it, then I need it, and I have to have it. And then wondering why, after making those decisions, that we were having financial problems. Because I wanted this house because we were having a baby and we need and we needed we needed more space. So let's move to a place completely out of our price range and then you'll just make up the difference. And then when you don't, it's your fault. You should have worked harder, you should have made more money, you weren't motivated enough. And, you know, as if I was completely not responsible in that situation. And so I realized very quickly that my marriage was in trouble. I was in trouble, and that if I didn't get back to where I started from, I was I was going to lose my marriage. I was going to lose my husband. And at that point, I already had one son. I had just given birth to my no, sorry, I had just given birth to my second son. So we were about three years into our marriage. At that point, we'd been having problems, and I remember calling one of my best friends and saying, "I want to get a divorce." But I have this nagging feeling that if I do and I meet someone else, I'm going to be having the same conversation with you in about five years about husband number two because I'm still going to be in that marriage. And I love my husband. He's a wonderful man. He's the best man I've ever met. And I didn't want to lose him. And, so, and I didn't want to break up my family either. And I, so I knew that I was going to have to go back to work. Because I wasn't maintaining a spiritual experience. I wasn't. I wasn't being honest with myself. And so at that point, we were living in in South Jersey. And I met some people who worked the big book there. And I got a sponsor. And I wrote another fourth step, starting from the time that I met my husband. So that was a good three, four years of work. And it ended up being just as long as my original fourth step. But this time, I did it knowing just how sick I am and that it wasn't about any kind of external circumstance that was going to make me better or anybody else taking responsibility for me. It was about me really owning what needed to be changed, being really brutally honest with myself. Part of it also was that before I got married, as I said, I had been living on the sidelines of life. I lived by myself. I didn't really have all of those complications that come up with being in real relationships. I never was in one, so I never knew. And then I ended up jumping into a really complicated relationship. Not because of my husband, but we our circumstances. My husband was married before we have two two daughters from my husband's first marriage. They don't live with us, but I went straight from being a single girl without ever having real relationships to being married to a guy with two kids. And dealing with, you know, that the emotional baggage with that and the financial baggage of that and all of the excuse me, all of, the, all of the details that come with that and not having no idea how to do with that. And being a self-centered person, I'm not good at sharing. So I really had to be honest about where I was coming from and about my own ideas about how life should go. If I want something, then I should have it, right? It should be mine because I deserve it. And if there's a need for it, then I need it right now. I can't wait a week. I can't wait a month. I can't wait a year. It has to be right now. But I realized as I wrote my fourth again that there were a lot of lies I was telling myself about reality. That the way that I see the world and the way that I think things should go is how they should go. And if they didn't, then I was the victim. And God was not doing what I should do. God doesn't like me. God's punishing me because I didn't get what I wanted. And I had to really, really break down to the foundation again and forget about myself again in a very different way. And on page 77, it says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. I hadn't really done that yet. But now with this fourth step, I became willing. And I so I wrote my fourth step, wrote another fourth step again. Um, and I wrote again for an hour for ten months and at that point I had two kids, one of whom was less than a year old, but I still squeezed in the time because I was desperate. And um and then I did my fifth step with my sponsor. And we took one day and I read it to her. We went from nine to five. I read her the whole thing. And that night and I ended up I was gonna supposed to do my hour of meditation for my six and seven right afterwards, but I needed to go because my husband had my kids, whatever, long story short, um I couldn't do it till later that evening. So my husband is a night owl, and he's usually awake till the wee hours of the morning. It's just his style. But that night, for some reason, he and both of my sons were asleep by 7 o'clock, 7.30. And it was like God sort of opened this little quiet window for me to have my time that night. And I sat there, and I did my 6 and 7 for real. And I looked at all of the things that I had done and all of the things that I believed and all the things that needed to be changed, and I was so sick of myself, I was at the point where not only was I willing, I was desperate for God to take them. And so when I said my seventh step, I meant every word of it. I offer myself to Thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt, to relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will, take away my difficulties. And sorry, take away my difficulties. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands away my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. I meant every word. And after I said it, I could feel God's presence in the room as strongly as as if I was sitting across the table from you at Starbucks. I could feel it. I knew it. I knew. As clear as day, the fact, I knew that God was there. It was my spiritual experience. I did not anticipate having it so clearly or so strongly or or right then. There are plenty of people who talk about their spiritual experience being of the educational variety. And in some, in some ways it was in the beginning, because I, I had built up a faith of some kind over time, and I did build up a relationship with the God of my understanding. But I never felt his presence as clearly as I did in that moment. And I knew after that night for the rest of my life that I would know that God was real. And even if I got to a place where my faith lagged or I was afraid or I wasn't sure things were going to work out, I knew that God was real. And that if God was real and if what I had done had made that accessible to me, then I just needed to follow what the book said and maintain what I had done, maintain the work I had done by not resting on my laurels and maintaining with 10, 11, and 12. I had to make amends, which I did. I wrote, I wrote out my list, but the list was easy because I I had all the information I needed for my fourth step. And I made my amends, some which I was able to do live, some which I, you know, was had to do through letters. And then I, um and since then, I've been maintaining with 10, 11, and 12. Again, the thing that I like best about this book is that it talks about progress rather than perfection
1: i don't.
4: I don't do this program perfectly by any means. I don't do this program perfectly. I don't do life perfectly. There are plenty of things about myself that I don't particularly I'm not proud of I'm not comfortable with, and there are things that I know need to be worked on and defects that I see coming up all the time, but there are a lot of things that I do really well. And there are a lot of things that I have grown into thanks to this program. And I can say with a full heart today that I am someone not only that I'm comfortable with, that I like. I like myself. I'm a good person. I try to do the right thing. I enjoy my own company. I'm now a wife. I'm a mother to three children, uh, five children, including my stepdaughters. I just had my third son three months ago. I, I work and I, I take care of a family, not perfectly, but I'm, I'm the centerpiece of a family and that calls for tremendous sacrifice every single day. I haven't slept late in five years. <laughs> I, you know, going to, going to a movie is not really an option, you know, going out for coffee, going and having like a coffee or going to, you know, having an afternoon at the museum. That's what I, that's not my life anymore. I read in an article today this woman was talking about how she had her children young so that she could get them out of the house early and get back to her life. And I just thought about myself and thinking, wow, I still would have been there without this program. I would have resented my children for cramping my style, for, you know, eating my independence. And I'm not saying I don't have my moments where I'd like to give them away, but I don't lament the fact that I'm not like some single gal bopping around the world anymore, that I've lost my chance at life. I'm doing the most noble work a person can do. I'm raising a family. I'm raising future members of the human race. And they are members of the human race now, but contributing members of society. And I, I'm i able to really celebrate who they are and not try to control who they are and not try to manipulate them into being someone else or be worried about other people's opinions of my parenting or opinions of my kids. I, I teach my kids to be human, and I use the tools of this program. The other day, my son did something, my three-year-old, and we were talking about mistakes, and he said, mistakes are good. You learn from them. He learned that from me. Those are the kinds of things that I teach my kids. When, you know, I definitely lose my patience on a daily basis, and when I yell, I make I make amends. My kids know. We apologize when you do something wrong. Mommies make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, and we apologize, and we just try to do better next time. I've given up on being perfect. In fact, my, my older son and I have a joke that, you know, if, if his bed's not made, uh-oh, the perfect police are going to come. And it's, it's a joke, you know. We, we don't have to do it perfectly. We're not supposed to do it perfectly. If, if I have come to a place where I'm perfect, then I really have no purpose on this earth anymore. I'm here to grow and I'm here to help other people. And when I think about the way the course of my life has gone, and I can sometimes, you know, we, we moved. I live in, in Rockland County, New York right now. We moved here six months ago for, to be closer to my stepdaughters. And it turned out that I got a job about 45 minutes from here. We're moving again in two weeks. And, you know, I sometimes look and I say, why did we even come here? Like, was so strange and, like, it was so complicated. There were so many things going on. And but then I remember, like, God has a much bigger plan than I do. And I've turned my will and my life over to him. Part of the reason we end up, ended up here was because, you know, I felt like we should we should come here. And we did, and we made that decision. And, you know, it, it, maybe it was the right decision, maybe it wasn't, but God wanted us here. We, we're here. God wanted us here. And I don't need to sit here and, and and overthink my life and overthink my decision If something happened, it was meant to happen. And I truly believe now, with the God of my understanding, that it was for the good. I believe in a higher power who loves me, who accepts me, who celebrates me? Who gave me a very specific job? Who made me and put me on this in this world to do something particular, and maybe a number of particular things? But I'm if I'm here by virtue of my being here, I'm worth something. I'm a child of God, and so is every other person I come in contact with, and I I I deserve and they deserve to be treated accordingly. And that said, I've been able to to help other people with this process because now I see the truth. I see. That all of the problems that I had in my life before were self created all the problems in my life weren't really problems they were situations that I made into problems or I looked at as if they were problems and if there was something in my life that really was a problem, chances are it was it was because I started it. I got the ball rolling and when I have a resentment against another person, it's because it brings something up in me that's that's uncomfortable when I, I remember one time i have a I have a very hard time with my in-laws they're very challenging people. And I remember calling my big book sponsor with a resembling. It's my father-in-law. And I said, you know, oh, he's driving me crazy. And she said, well, that's because he's you. And I remember being so offended when she said that. And then I thought about it later. I'm like, of course, she's right. If I, if I wasn't like that, I wouldn't recognize that behavior. It wouldn't bother me. It wouldn't, I wouldn't even know what he was doing. But I do that. So that's why it bothers me. And the same thing with, you know, various principles. When I get upset about certain, like when I wrote my fourth and and they said, um, you know, and you have a resentment against a certain principle, and I remember saying to my big book sponsor, I really don't understand what a principle is. She said, of course you don't. You don't have any. (laughs) And, again, I was really offended, but she was right. I didn't have principles. The only principle I had was how does this work in my favor? That's it. I didn't, that's it. That's all, I cared about me. That's about it. I didn't, the principles were, were not really important. And now I'm a principled person. You know, I try to do the right thing, even if it's hard. And that's, that's for me is what life is really, what my life is about. And it's not about me getting what I want or trying to fill myself up with stuff or with food or with money or some sense of security outside of myself. A peaceful life is really building a relationship with God, doing the right thing so that I can be comfortable in my own skin, and then feeling, and then making myself worthy. And I already am worthy, but being a worthy person by doing acts of service for others. I earn my keep in this world by helping other people, by helping others of God's creation. So I try to do that to the best of my ability every day and I try to use this book, and again, as I said, I don't do it perfectly, and right now my life is a little bit hectic in terms of my 11th step. It's very hard for me to get some time to myself for meditation um, when I'm up with a three-month-old baby, but, you know, I make it work, and I do the best I can, and I call my sponsor every day, and I check in, and I say, I'm here. I'm doing the best I can, and thank God I have a very loving sponsor who says to me, yes, you are. So that's about it, Um, and I, again, I really appreciate everybody listening, and and I look forward to hearing what everybody else has to say. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Rhea. appreciate you coming on and, and offering that service to us today. Um, the transforming miraculous passageways of the 12 steps are very evident evident here. Thank you so much. Here at A Vision for You, we have a question and answer time that our fellows oftentimes will have questions of our speaker. Do you have time to stick around with us, Rhea?
4: Um, I do have a few minutes. I have a few minutes. A
0: few minutes. How much time would you say? So I'd um, say a bit.
4: Maybe, maybe five to ten minutes.
0: Five to ten minutes. Oh, wonderful. And and then would you be willing to leave your
4: telephone number
0: for phone contact from people? Of
4: course. Yeah, absolutely. Should I give it now?
0: Yes, please.
4: Okay, it's 856 375 3896. And I'm sorry, I'm going to limit it to five minutes only because I hear my baby starting to fuss.
0: Okay, I hear you. So it's 856 375 3896. And that's Three eight nine six, And that's Eastern Time.
4: Eastern Time, yep.
0: Thank you. Rhea has five minutes that she can share with us today. And are there any fellows out there that have questions for her? We'll take a couple, it sounds like. like
2: Elaine Jesus?
0: Hi, Elaine. Hi, You're the first one with questions. Thank you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Hi, Rhea. It is great to hear you. Hi, wonder <laughs> Hi. Hi. <laughs> She's recovered in Massachusetts. Ray. what would you say to parents who have discovered that their daughter
4: is bulimic, anorexic, and suicidal? I would say love her. Just keep loving her. Just tell her that you're there, that you're not going anywhere, that you are always there. Because for me, nothing anybody told me about stopping was going to stop me. But knowing that I had a safe place to come home to is what kept me going. And part of knowing how much I was loved was what stopped me from hurting myself because I knew how much pain it would cause the people that loved me if I did something to myself.
1: Thank you, Rhea. Thank you, Elaine. A second question today for Rhea. Hi, Ray.
5: Hi, good
1: morning. Hi, this is Lorraine
5: from New Jersey. I'm also bulimic. And uh, all I can say is, hallelujah. Hallelujah. That was friggin' awesome. I've been around the program for like 32 years, and I'll be honest with you, I have never heard my story the way it was told by you. I have to be in work within five minutes, and I thought, dear God, you're going to have to get me there because I have to listen to this woman. And I know I can listen to you later, but I just, I was compelled to listen because I've been a bulimic most of my life. And now I finally, after working with someone in um, a vision for you, I'm finally realizing that I, even though I had very low self-esteem, thought everyone was better than me, it was still the I. I was so that was such a rude awakening to me when I found that out. But for to have you say it again and again is such a a, a vision for me to. Oh, Lorraine, are you
0: still there? Would Would you be able to
4: repeat your phone number again?
0: I can, but just a minute. I want to make sure Lorraine was still there. We might have had her get cut off or something. Lorraine, are you still there?
5: Uh, you know what? I was cut off.
0: Okay. You, c- c- continue. You're back now. Continue.
5: Well, you know what? I am just so in awe and so grateful because, you know, it's funny how I met many, many people in this program over the years, and I feel my life has Completely changed since I've been in a vision for you. Far from perfect. But it was funny because I was talking to someone on the phone this morning. This is a person who's a staunch, abstinent person and in, is in this program for. Da-da-da. She said to me, she turned to me and she said, You need to go to church and you need to go to communion. That's what's wrong. And I thought to myself, after I heard you on this line, I thought to myself, dear God, you knew exactly what I needed. You knew I needed to hear this woman speak, because that's my church, and that's my communion today. So I don't have to listen. There are some crazy, still crazy people in this program, and that's okay, because I was one of those people, too, and I still could be on a daily basis. But today, I have a vision, and that vision is in the big book. And I have a wonderful sponsor who guides me along that path. So God bless you. Thank you. I, I, I just am in awe. I am so friggin' blown away today. It's my high. I don't have to take laxatives today. I don't have to eat and vomit to get high. I heard you. God bless you. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
4: I'm sorry. I have to go now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Rhea, and thank, thank you, you so much, Rhea. Thank rain. you, everyone.
4: All right, thank Absolutely. Care.
0: And I I will repeat Rhea's telephone number, and it is 856-375-3896. And I wanted to give you the um, spelling of her name so that you know that, and it's RH- E-A-Reya from New York area, Eastern Time. And I would also like to give you the share ID number for this particular meeting, which is 5479. And and I would like to close our meeting today, if we could all press star 1 on our phone keypads. I'd like to close the meeting today with page 164 our favorite way to close this meeting, and that is, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got.